Before we continue pushing forward with Season 4, a few people I've connected with in the community have suggested that a recap of events and characters may be in order, and I can understand why. When I started this podcast in July of 2019, I seriously loved the idea of making a narrated documentary-style show highlighting a separate document within the storage papers each week. It had all the paranormal vibes I enjoy talking about with a sort of anthology type of feel. But things have changed. Have you ever had one of those moments where you didn't realize you were involved in something important? Something central to what was going to happen in your life going forward. A turning point, so to speak. This podcast has been that for me, assuredly. I wasn't sure how to approach this recap given everything has become so intertwined. So I'll do the best I can, but feel free to send me any questions you might have. I just want to start way back in the second episode of the first season. That episode just keeps popping up, and that's where I first laid eyes on the Grinner, and where I first heard Detective Mark Anderson's name. The letter I read was penned by him. It was also addressed to Ron, who I later learned was Ron Hammond, a former colleague and mentor to Anderson, who he had been consulting with on cases involving seemingly unexplained phenomena. There was also an accompanying creepy video, which happened to be contained on a thumb drive previously owned by one Benjamin Scanlon. Rest in peace. In this video, the Grinner seemingly appeared out of thin air in a hotel parking lot, where the video portrays him lurking around a specific room, looking in the window, and kind of moving in that oh-so-unnatural way that he did. Or does. I honestly don't know what tends to use because I don't know if it's still alive or even in this plane of existence. Anyways, this night at the hotel seems to be a central event where a lot is going on that's still not 100% known. The hotel in the video was the very same hotel where an open homicide investigation had been ongoing. It involved a seemingly self-inflicted gunshot wound to the head. At some point between Season 1 and Season 4 of the podcast, a person identifying as 4th Trumpet on Twitter began feeding me anonymous tips and information. More on this individual later, but there was a tweet from them mentioning Gerald Hubert. I had no idea who that was until Season 4, Episode 4, called Subject 14-3, where the police report from this hotel homicide identified the victim as Joseph Foy. But I previously learned that the media released the identity of the victim as Gerald Hubert. This is something I've had to put on the back burner for a while now, but it's high on my priority list to research. Of course, we learned from an extended version of the video from the hotel, given to me by Dr. Patel, I'll also speak more about her later, that Ron Hammond was at the scene of this homicide, and he never volunteered this information to Detective Anderson. If I had to guess, this was perceived as a huge betrayal of trust by Anderson. Frankly, I'm finding it difficult to trust anything Ron says or does, but that's just been my experience with him. Anderson's known him far longer since his early days in law enforcement. I hope I'm not being too scattered so far and that you're still following. Believe me, I'm sure there's information I've already reviewed on the podcast that's connected and I just don't know it yet. It seems like I learn that almost every time I produce a new episode. 
Maybe things would be clearer if I just go by listing people involved. There's Ron Hammond, who we've identified as the previous owner of the so-called storage papers. I know, super clever name for a podcast, right? I still don't know how or why he would just stop paying his storage bills containing these documents. But at the same time, it allowed me to come into possession of them. Something tells me that fate was involved, or perhaps even something more intentional. Anyways, he's a friend and former colleague who serves as a consultant on occasion to Detective Anderson. He's also had some tragedy in his life with the loss of his wife, and he was blackmailed by someone working in Project Hydra, which I'm still not entirely sure what that is except for the fact that they seem to have black projects, theoretical research branches, and potentially government funding. I've only recently learned that he is the biological father to Benjamin and Brianne Scanlon. He seems to be motivated heavily by personal reasons, only known to him, and he's been willing and able to conceal the truth from those closest to him. Something a double agent would be great at doing, whether out of free will or necessity. Ben Scanlon, unfortunately, we lost in a showdown with the Grinner at the end of Season 2. That whole situation was kind of a blur, but someone close to me recently suggested I take a hard look at the events that unfolded on my podcast and ask a bunch of questions. My greatest enemies are time and opportunity for this goal. Either way, we know Ben was highly protective of his sister Brienne and gave his life to protect her. He had met the Grinner prior to our showdown in the church, and he seemed like a stand-up guy from what I know, although somewhat tormented. Brianne Scanlon is a nurse by trade, and quite frankly has been my greatest ally in this whole thing. Maybe next to Detective Anderson. She's had trauma in her life. To what extent, I'm not sure, but she manages to impress me with her kindness and ability to see the best in everyone. She was dating a guy named Malcolm Foy at one point, who later we learned was either possessed or heavily influenced by the being known as the Grinner. Brienne's experience in the medical field has helped with some of our investigations into the medical documents, both contained in the storage papers and given to me from Dr. Patel and some other anonymous resources. She has since been abducted by Malcolm and has escaped, and she has also befriended my wife and brings us cookies on occasion. She's definitely a chain smoker and doesn't sleep well, and I imagine she's still having vivid nightmares similar to the ones that kept her up at night way back in the early season of the podcast. She's also labeled as a shepherd in the medical files, meaning she supposedly has the ability to translocate physical objects and living beings from parallel dimensions to our own. I might as well talk about Malcolm Foy at this point. Malcolm is somewhat of an enigma to me. He, at least at some point in his life, has displayed superior abilities to those of makers and shepherds, and we know that he was a Hydra kid used in experimentation from a very young age. We also know he was primarily raised by his grandfather, Joseph Foy, and that he appears to be responsible for the disappearance and murder of his sister Tabitha, for which he feels tremendous guilt, and we know that at least partially motivates him to do the things he does. His body was inhabited by the Grinner for at least as long as Brienne has known him, 
and he makes frequently poor decisions with malicious intent. He most recently has escaped from prison, and he's threatened me with death in the past, while feeling the need to remind Brienne of a debt she owes. We're assuming this refers to the bloodletting ritual explored in the episode that introduced us to the Order of the Divine Acolytes. Since Malcolm is so closely tied to the Grinner, I feel the need to talk about the Grinner a little bit, since it's distinguishable as separate from Malcolm, at least now. I don't know much except that it has qualities of a demonic entity, yet doesn't seem to have the expected boundaries of one, which kind of scares me. Okay, it scares me immensely. I believe the Grinner is what was giving me the nightmares early in the series, and I know it was stalking me at one point. It appears human most of the time, and can transform its shape and appearance as it sees fit. We've all assumed it's dead after the season 2 finale, but I can't be 100% certain. I can only hope so. Then there's Detective Mark Anderson. He's been kind of a godsend lately as he's been helping me out with some of the things related to the podcast. He's a no-nonsense kind of guy and calls bullshit when he sees it. He's methodical, yet empathetic, and he's really good at his job. I think this podcast is rubbing off on him a bit. He's found a new creative outlet by creating his own series of work called Unwanted Places that I'm helping him test out on our Patreon feed. So far, he seems to be the moral foundation of the group, and he's loyal to his friends. I also need to mention Dr. Adira Patel. I don't know many facts, and some of what I'm about to share is pure conjecture, but she seemed like she was an up-and-coming authority within Project Hydra, or at the very least, SCIC. I've always felt like she was playing all sides to get what she wants. What that is, or was, I just don't know. But the feeling I walked away with after meeting her when she sabotaged my therapy session was that she believes that whatever she's doing is for the betterment of mankind, to make advancements in science. I'm not sure she has a cohesive sense of morality, though, as she seemingly bent a lot of rules and ethical principles. She did, however, help me out by providing some documents I'm sure I'm not supposed to have in my possession, right before she lost her life. Her death was ruled a suicide, but something tells me she didn't choose to jump off a high-rise building downtown right after she began confiding in me. Still, I continue to find her signature and references to her seemingly every time I dig into new documents in the papers. There's a couple individuals I'm going to refrain from speaking of at the moment, like Joseph Foy and Gerald Hubert. You'll hear more about them as Season 4 unfolds, and I'll also be introducing some new people I haven't mentioned yet. I do feel the need to mention Project Hydra as well. I can't prove this right now, but it seems that nearly every document contained within the papers pertains to this mysterious initiative. While the papers themselves seem to document paranormal phenomena, there's also evidence of other important information like medical files, extrasensory perception, fringe science, and the analysis of how to use it all for gain. Some info I've received from anonymous sources claiming to have inside knowledge of Hydra claim there are several departments within it, including but not limited to areas like occult studies, 
psychical research, medical, genetics, physics, and advanced technology. And some of that has been backed up by what I've seen. Please keep in mind that some of this is highly speculative. We must assume that powers within Hydra are aware of the information in my possession. I don't know if you've noticed, but I've stopped asking for listener feedback and information after season one of the show. Largely because I got the feeling I was receiving misinformation and potentially disinformation. If that's happened, I must apologize to the listeners. Project Hydra, I know, is alive and well, but due to the high level of compartmentalization involved, it's very possible that it's no longer under anyone's direction specifically. I'd like to propose that this project is so classified that the government is no longer in control of it, and likely hasn't been for some time. I assume this because of the shady ethics I've seen demonstrated within the papers, which means if someone has enough clout within the organization, it's likely kind of a power grab scenario as different departments compete for control. Again, purely speculation, but Ron likely knows way more than I do, and is just choosing not to share. It's very disappointing. This is where SCIC comes in. SCIC, or Southern California Independent Contractors, is a scientific research company that hires doctors and scientists like Adira Patel and subcontracts their skills and expertise to government organizations. It appears that Patel was the only remaining SCIC representative with in-depth knowledge of what they were contracted by Hydra to do. It's possible that info was documented somewhere, but it's also likely that it died with her. I suspect this union is responsible in its entirety for the high occurrences of paranormal phenomena in the San Diego area. There's definitely a lot more to learn on this front. I guess that just leaves me. What's to say? I've traditionally led a fairly private life, and what little I've shared on the show is somewhat out of necessity for the listeners. I'm married to my wife of 18 years, and have two boys, ages 16 and 12. I don't remember much of my childhood, but as I've recently uncovered within the papers and the documents Dr. Patel has sent me, I was labeled as a maker. Makers, of course, have the ability to manifest physical objects and beings, literally anything you can imagine, out of nothing. It's like the original Ghostbusters movie when Gozer told them to choose the form of the Destructor. They thought of this 100-foot Stay Puft Marshmallow Man. It just manifested based on someone's thought. A mental image. The medical files also contain information about my parents and my so-called accident that wiped my memory at a young age. I don't know if you believe in fate or not, and I'm not sure if I do, to be perfectly honest. The fact that Ben, Brianne, and Malcolm were all Hydra kids and evidence seems to be leaning toward being one myself just doesn't seem like chance. Still, though, something doesn't feel right. Something is incredibly off, and it just doesn't seem to fit in my mind, not only with these medical files, but with me in my surroundings. I feel out of place, so to speak. 
If you believe fate has anything to do with what's going on, then maybe fate is trying to put me where I belong. As I said, I can't explain it. It's just a feeling. I spoke at the beginning of this recap of turning points. Moments in time where, whether you realize it or not at the time, will alter everything based on your choices going forward. It's like Jim Carrey in the movie Truman Show, when he nearly goes insane before he learns he's in a simulated reality. It's like Keanu Reeves in The Matrix when he has the epiphany that the bullets he was just shot with by Agent Smith weren't real. You can see that pause, that sudden mix of rushed emotions, including logical reason, confusion, and validation of your suspicions, all spinning in your head like a Class 5 tornado, with the new realization that you know your very existence has been wrong somehow, or at least very misinformed. And then you have an awakening with a new purpose in life. Well, I haven't had an awakening, but I believe there's an awakening on the horizon. I can't say for sure whether that awakening will be something involving me or someone close to me, but the feeling is palpable, like static electricity in the air before a lightning strike. I haven't been able to shake that feeling since I read about the Pyramidian. It just feels like it's all going to come together soon. At the same time, my physical health has also been met with some challenges, and this awakening is starting to feel like a race against time. Unfortunately, there are still some things I just can't share with you right now. Things that are pertinent to the podcast and everything I've been researching that are occurring as a direct result of me looking into these papers. I need to maintain some secrets, for now, out of necessity. These secrets, I can assure you, are kept in everyone's best interest, and I can only hope that someday I can share those with you at a time where the consequences of doing so won't be so detrimental. If you've stuck with the show up until now, I just want to say thank you for continuing to listen. The show started out as one thing, but took on the life of something entirely different. Being in the hospital lately has allowed me somewhat of a needed break for reflection and to gain clarity on the bigger picture at play. I'll have more information to share going forward, and on December 13th, I'll fill you in on my meeting at El Campo Cemetery. <laughs>